The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Craig Curtis. Craig is the head of architecture at the construction startup Katera and has an extensive background in innovative architecture. Craig talked with us about the housing crisis, bringing down construction costs and sustainability in architecture. He also told us how innovations in construction could revitalize resort towns like Jackson Hole, Wyoming. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you share your full name and title? Yeah, my name is Craig Curtis, and I am the chief architect with Katera. So let's start off with a few easy questions here. What is your favorite city? Yeah, that's a great question and a difficult one to answer. You know, I would say that my favorite city tends to be cities that I visit for the first time. There are, you know, some cities I like to go back to, but I certainly would prefer to just explore new places. That said, I live in Seattle and love this city, so I'd have to say Seattle is probably my favorite. That's why I'm still here. Yeah, awesome. I, you know, I've never been to Seattle. That is on my on my to-do list. I need to come and visit you all after the podcast airs. Yeah, it's a great city. You know, of, of course, it's it's small by comparison to a lot of the great, what are, you know, considered the great cities of the world, but this, we have fantastic access to the natural environment, you know, right on Puget Sound, close to the mountains, two mountain ranges within uh, easy access. I, I live very close to the Olympic Mountains, and there's no shortage of places to explore out there and lots of salt water. Yeah, that's great. What do you think makes a city great? Definitely walkability. For me personally, I think also, you know, access to a great natural environment close by, easy access to that. And that's just me personally. But, you know, within the city environment itself, it has to be walkable. It's funny that because, you know, that can apply to cities of any scale. Like I love, absolutely love walking around in Shanghai, which it would take you, you know, an entire day to walk from one side of that city to the other. But on the other hand, you could pretty much get dropped down anywhere in Shanghai and start walking and have an incredible experience. On the other hand, you know, some of the best cities to walk in are small. Portland, Oregon, I think is a great one. Port Townsend, Washington, those are a couple of yeah. my favorite cities of, you know, smaller stature, but lots to see on the, on the ground. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you kind of started this journey towards Katera. Well, I was with, uh, you know, I spent a few years down in California right after graduating from university. San Diego seemed like a pretty fun place to live. And so that's what I did for the first three years of my career, which was a great experience. And then I landed at Miller Hall in uh, 1987 and was there for almost 30 years. I actually thought, why would I ever leave? I mean, it really was a great place to work. I was a design partner there. 
had landed some fantastic contracts, including U.S. Embassy work for the Department of State, huge projects for GSA, including the border crossing at San, San Ysidro, the busiest border crossing in the world and the most interesting project I've ever worked on in my life. Things were going quite well. And then a good friend of mine, uh, Pete Wolf, who had, I had actually hired right out of school back in the 90s to come work for me at Miller Hall. We became friends and he left long ago and entered the private development world, but we've remained friends. And he started telling me about Katera. He got involved very early. He was, you know, one of the first 10 employees of Katera when it was just an idea. And the more he shared his enthusiasm with this new idea to me, the more I started to get intrigued. And he was finally able to convince me to come give it a try. And once I, once I got into it with him, I realized that this is something that's really unique. And as far as making an impact on the entire industry or the, or the, or the entire planet, I think this is something I feel like, let's just give it a shot and see where this goes. I mean, we're still very early, but I have high hopes that you know, we're going to do something really special here with this company. And, you know, I'm 58. I figured I've got 10 good years left. What do I want to do? And this was thrown into my lap. And so I jumped at it, kind of a, a risk at this at this point of my my career, but I'm not looking back at all. It's been a blast. Oh come on, ten good years. I'm I'm looking at twenty. I mean, I think. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you look at the best work from architects, and and quite often it's you know in their fifties and sixties when they produce it. So it's, I hope that happens for me. So let's talk about kind of like the problem, like the problem at hand. How did you, I mean, did you face, did you see things in your previous 30 years that you were kind of saw different elements of, well, that isn't a very streamlined process or that was very painstaking or, wow, this is kind of slow or this is inefficient or, you know, we're wasting a ton of materials or, you know, we're not building sustainably, like kind of diagram the problem for me that you saw you know, kind of before you joined the team and then how you're looking at, at solving kind of all of those problems together? Well, you know, I, I wish that I could say that I had this this vision of the future because of what I was experiencing. But, you know, in reality, I, I saw those problems every day and just accepted it as part of the business as usual. This is status quo. This is how this industry has always worked and it always will work. And we have to just kind of fight through it continue to just swim upstream and, and hope for the best. And it wasn't that I had any idea that I, that there would be something like Katera to come along and actually have a shot at, at really, truly solving some of these problems. But now that I'm into it, I do realize that there may be a path forward to solve a lot of these problems that we just have been taking for granted. You know, I, I think that when Karen Timberlake wrote that book, Refabricating Architecture, they clearly saw something back then and wrote about it. And I, I loved that book and embraced it. We embrace it here at, at Katera widely. I think it's a great, great read. And so and I, I think some of these ideas have been around for, for a while. But in, in order to really execute on these problems, I, I am now convinced that it takes something like the Silicon Valley disruption model in order to make it work. It's never going to just come from within. Lots of 
people refer to this the same issue around the way you know Uber was started was not started by a by a cab company or Airbnb it did not come from within hospitality I don't really see that any construction company or God forbid an architecture firm would never have the kind of capital to to take on a problem that's this immense without that Silicon Valley disruption mentality. You know, I, I was in the military and one of the reasons that young officers specifically, but really anyone gets out is that promotion rates are very fixed, right? So the idea is, I think there's 300 generals, 301 generals in the army, and that's it. Those are the only spots, right? So kind of the idea, you know, and I always was curious about this. And I was like, well, that's, you know, if if Napoleon was in the army right now, or George Washington, right, it would take George Washington 25 years to make general. That's kind of crazy. Wouldn't he be probably pretty good after about five? or 10, or whatever it is. And so I always kind of thought that was really interesting. And one of the people, one of my mentors said to me, like, Ian, why would the people who made it to that point question the route that it took to get there? Right? It's like, why would the folks who are currently in the architecture world question how they got to this place, rather than just kind of saying, well, I mean, it worked for us to get here. So, you know, clearly, this is progress. But there were kind of some indicators that it is no longer progress. Kieran Timberlake talked about the idea that the construction industry is actually regressing in some ways due to the complexity of systems and the needs on when you're creating a building, there's essentially exponentially more systems and complexity to building and therefore now things are slowing. I mean, is that kind of thought prevalent, you think, in the industry where it's like, hey, this is how we got here and you know, it's just too hard to pick your head up and say, like, how, I don't even know how I could enact change at, at this level. Or what are other people's thought process there? Yeah, I definitely feel that same way. And I, I certainly saw that. And, you know, I often at Miller Hall talked about how the level of documentation has grown so much in order to deliver projects that I don't necessarily think are delivered any more efficiently than they used to be with, you know, a quarter of the amount of effort going into the documentation behind it. Part of it is definitely complexity of building systems. But on the other hand, you know, how difficult is it to document those building systems? We should be, as the systems get more advanced technologically, we should have tools to make it easier to put the documentation together in order to deliver those systems. And I have not seen that happen at all. I mean, one of the one of the examples I like to use is the very first project I did at Miller Hall was a house that was a record house, it got lots of publicity, it was a beautiful home. I did with Bob Hall, who was my mentor there, and the entire set of drawings was eight sheets, and that included structural and electrical. And it was constructed in about, oh, I don't know, less than six months. You know, it wasn't a big home, but it was beautifully detailed, it had everything you'd want in a home. Today, if the firm were to take that on, I guarantee it would be five times the number of sheets. It would take twice as long to build. It would be five times as as expensive and for this exact same product. So that's just going backwards. Yeah. I mean, so why do buildings cost so much? Yeah, definitely part of it is the complexity of the systems, especially when you get into commercial building. But I also think that there is a lot of waste in the way things are put together. 
we're definitely discovering here at Katera that when you when you go into a project from the very beginning, knowing that you're designing for manufacturing instead of just designing for interpretation of a, of a two-dimensional set of documents by a contractor, it's a different mentality. You're really designing for the machine sets in the factory and for any thinking about how it's going to be assembled in, in larger pieces in the field. And if you have that mentality going in, it's remarkable how much waste you can cut out of these buildings. That's so interesting. And it's something that we talked about with Karen Timberlake was the idea that architects were not building for the product to be created or they were not they were not creating designs and all of that for the product that was actually going to be created that a lot of times it was designing in a way that really wasn't actually that useful but with the advent of certain technologies now you can actually design with the end product in mind how much does technology play a role and like modeling play a role in in some of the ability to you know, create that stuff that you're doing at Katera? Yeah, the technology backbone here at Katera is pretty complex. On the design side, the base program that we use to build our models is is Revit. So that's pretty common to the industry. But once you get beyond that, there are so many different types of software that we're using in order to be able to deliver to manufacturing. You know, right now, we have to convert those Revit models through uh, HSB CAD. And a software that's specifically for the manufacturing industry, which is unfortunate. You know, there should be software that if you start to build a model as an architect, we should be able to take that all the way through component design, right to the files that go to the factory floor. So that's a software problem that we hope to fix over time. But the overlay of technology over everything that we do includes SAP, which is a very robust, mostly supply chain based technology software that you know most of the major manufacturing companies in the world use in order to track parts globally. We started using that when we were a company of maybe 50 to 100 people, which is unheard of. But SAP saw this as an opportunity to get into this space, which really hasn't had any major players yet at, at, at the scale that would require that kind of robust technology. So that's the, the underlying backbone I would say of the entire company is SAP. And then on the design side, we plug into that with Unify and HSB CAD and, and Revit. And we have a team of software engineers in India that are developing software for us specifically that'll be you know, proprietary to our particular systems and processes. So that's like startup 101 is think like a big company, right? Yeah. Is, you know, you need to start building for you know, you to be a bigger company later right now. I mean, we do that all the time at the mission. It's every single thing is like, you know, what does this look like? Are are we going to still be using these same systems as we, as we scale and the investments in infrastructure of like very early on, like internal systems and technology is critical as you grow. What is your integrated design approach and how do you kind of herd the cats as you look at design and multiple team members? Yeah, the integrated design approach here at Katera is definitely taking it to another level. I think integrated design is something that I think firms like Miller Hall really take a lot of pride in. I was a big part of that when I was involved with the Bullet Center, for example, the world's first commercial office building to pass the living living building challenge. The only way to solve those kind of problems to produce net zero buildings is with a fully integrated team. 
The difference here is that integration then goes beyond the integration of engineers and landscape architects and interior designers, but goes into material suppliers. And we have supply chain global sourcing commodity managers across the globe working with a team of 30 people spread out through Asia sourcing materials. It works with logistics people here in the U.S. who are concentrating on the most efficient way to deliver materials from warehouses to factories to job sites and designing with factory leaders to understand what the true capabilities of the, of the equipment sets are within these factories. So the integration is, is quite different. It goes to another level all the way through thinking of final assembly of the building. Is that as simple as aligning incentives and then tracking everything? I mean, I, I don't want to be like reductive, but at the same time, it just seems like that entire process had not been optimized before. And so therefore, to be able to number one, see everything is already a you know enormous achievement. And then aligning incentives across the entire design to manufacturing and then getting kind of just same pageism and aligning those incentives. I mean, is that kind of the thought process there? Yeah, it is thought process and it sounds easy, but it's been incredibly difficult. You know, we're about three years in on this and I'd have to say, I think we're, we're finally starting to figure this out. But, you know, as with any organization, one of the first things is to break down those silos between the different groups. And with Katera, this is such a broad challenge that we're taking on. You can imagine we have people in so many different hats and to try to get that integration happening between groups that have never really had to integrate before has been one of our biggest challenges, but we're getting there. We're making great progress. Kind of switching gears a little bit to something else that I think is really innovative is this design consortium. Like what is this and how is it used at Katera? Is this something that's old that you're bringing back, you know, back to new, or is this something that is kind of a little revolutionary? Yeah, our founder, Michael Marks, and I came up with this idea of a design consortium. From the very beginning, Michael really embraced the idea that Katera should be a design-first company, a design-led company, that we're not going to be successful unless the products that we produce are beautiful, they match up against our peers, they're accepted as good solid pieces of architecture every every project that we construct should be seen at that level and so how do we how do we get there especially when you're growing a design company from zero so you don't have any history together you're growing it extremely rapidly and so how do you produce that quality work we thought one way to do that is make sure that we're always testing ourselves and maybe one way to do that is bring in a group of peers who are highly respected from across the country, covering every every region of the U.S., and have them as a sounding board. And so we can talk to them about what we're doing, get their feedback, and see if we're on track, see what kind of reaction we get. Eventually, as we're, as we're producing work, we'll be able to use them as design critics to keep us on top of our game. So that's how it started. It's evolved. We actually have started doing some work with some of these, some, some of the design consortium members. And in fact, you know, we even developed such a close relationship with Michael Green and with Ordex Argent that we ended up bringing them into the fold and they're now, you know, part of Katera. So it's kind of interesting how it's evolved and we'll be bringing new members in, I think, to fill those gaps. But 
all in all, it's been a great experience. It's been really interesting to have these conversations with leaders from these well-respected firms just to get feedback on what we're doing. It seems like the design consortium is not only a place where obviously you're kind of getting talent. It's like a talent acquisition pipeline now, which is probably an unintended consequence, but also a way to like drive innovation and find potentially, you know, up and coming folks, mixing them with established folks, pushing the pace of innovation and thinking not only just as a sounding board. I mean, is this something that, I mean, what does that look like in 15 years? Is this something that continues to put the best thought leaders in one place, focusing on how you can continue to innovate in an exponential manner? Well, I I love that thought. What it looks like in 15 years, I I have no idea how it even looks in one year, honestly, but I like the way you just stated it. And if we can use the design consortium as one of the, one of the tools in order to explore those ideas and bring in, you know, great thinkers and, and people of all generations within the industry to provide us with feedback, we're absolutely interested in that. We're pretty much an open book company and uh, want to learn from others and are willing to share what we're doing with others as well. Let's talk about what you're doing to push the pace of innovation with sustainability. And obviously, you know, you had some experience with this prior to joining Katera with projects that included doing the living building challenge and I guess like green building and all of that. I mean, just kind of talk about what you're doing to build a more sustainable future to prevent waste to prevent kind of the building of landfills and how you kind of view sustainability. Yeah, we're pretty excited about what we can do in terms of making a making a real contribution to being environmentally responsible. And we're taking a little bit of a different approach because we're such a different company. We're not just a design company or just a construction company. You know, we're a, you know, a major supply chain company as well. You read a lot today about how supply chain is one of the more interesting topics in the sustainability discussion, a conversation, because of the embodied energy that goes into transportation and production of materials and the, you know, the greenhouse gases that are emitted from different types of production. Those are the kinds of things that we track pretty carefully and can make a pretty big contribution in, I think, I think worldwide. And so we're thinking of it very holistically, just the same way that we're thinking about, you know, everything that we do. This is a very broad-based approach to solving the problem, including solving the problem of climate change and, you know, environmental issues like that. Even on the social side, you know, we are very careful about where we're sourcing our materials. And any of our manufacturers that get approved in Asia have to pass a pretty stringent set of guidelines around not only, you know, meeting the environmental responsibility criteria that we've set, but also to make sure that, you know, proper wages are being paid and proper hours are being worked in those factories and things like that. So, you know, as we scale, I think that we'll make a positive impact in everything that we do. It's just not, you know, it's not simply just a checklist for a building product, but it's much more far reaching than that. What about this idea of kind of net zero buildings. We've had some folks talk about different levels of what like net zero actually means with kind of regards to all the things you were just saying, all the different things that go into that, you know, whether it's, is is that including 
you know, what it takes to bring the materials there, what it takes to create those materials and all of those different things. What's kind of the trouble with, with buildings? Like what are the real environmental impacts of, of construction and how much waste is there? Well, I think there is a lot of ways to answer that question first. I mean, we've been tracking that. And one of the biggest advantages, frankly, of using a factory model for offsite fabrication is the elimination of waste. There is a lot of waste on, a, on any comm job site, regardless of whether it's wood frame or, or other materials that are predominantly used, especially in, in the U.S. And we've definitely found that we can cut that down to uh, maybe 5%, I think, is where we are right now in our, in our first factory in Phoenix. We hope to improve that. The people who are coming from other manufacturing sectors, like in electronics, they, they're appalled that we would even be at uh, 5% waste within a factory. They're, they're driving that number even lower. So right off the bat, I think just the efficiency of designing for manufacturing and, and procuring materials that are specific for the manufacturing environment is going to cut down on waste. And then back to your question on, uh, on net zero, we're pretty motivated to be, able to, to be able to provide net zero ready buildings in just about everything that we do. Even our most affordable product that we're looking at in the multifamily sector we are already looking at ways where we can take those buildings to net zero energy. And in fact, when you think about it, if, any, if anybody really needs a low utility bill, it's those people who are living at the lowest end of the, the AMI. So I think we would feel fantastic if we could eventually get to a point where we're providing housing for people with no utility bill, that the electricity is free because we've been able to design it right into the, into the project from the beginning. And that's just remarkable. I mean, the fact that going into the building, you could you can start planning for power, for electricity, for all of those things to be self-sustaining is really remarkable. I mean, does that, I mean, obviously that technology exists now and it's about putting it into more things. I mean, how realistic is that over the next, you know, and, and I guess let's kind of talk about some of the things like millions of people every year requiring housing every year in India. Other examples like that where there's a massive problem for housing in the world. I mean, it cannot be understated how enormous the problem is over the next 50 years, how many people will go into and require housing, right? So with that kind of in mind, I mean, the ability to not only provide housing that is exponentially better than where they're living, you can also remove things like electricity costs and all of that like how how close are we to this i think we're i think we're very close and you know i think we have to be realistic about where we can achieve it and where we can't i mean in certain climate zones it's going to be very difficult and maybe we don't have to provide it everywhere but where it's low hanging fruit we absolutely are close to being there there are plenty of regions we're looking at right now with our projects where it looks like it's going to pencil very early that we'll get there. We'll get to net zero energy on some of these projects very rapidly. And across the globe, I think there are all kinds of opportunities. And you, know, you mentioned that the housing need, we didn't think that we'd be getting into the international work as quickly as we have. You know, we were really trying to solve it domestically, but our founder, Michael Marks, is pretty opportunistic and also definitely has experience of, you know, of running a company that had 350,000 people across the globe in factories in 30 countries. So his understanding of the, of the global problems, I think, is, you know, just comes, comes naturally. 
And so when a couple of these opportunities have come up, specifically the, the latest acquisition of Kef Infra in India, which is a precast construction company that does prefabricated housing and other types of buildings, such as hospitals throughout India. That was a very opportunistic acquisition that it wasn't like something we were out there looking for, but it came up and Michael recognized that this was an opportunity to jump in and solve problems there much in the same way that we're doing it here using different technology, different resources, different natural resources that are available in that part of the world. You know, we are looking at projects in Saudi Arabia where the new crown prince has has stated a goal of taking home ownership from 30% currently to 70%, which is a pretty remarkable jump in the demand for home ownership. So this housing crisis that we see in the U.S. is not solely based here. I mean, we're seeing it all over, all over Europe, definitely in Asia, India, Saudi Arabia. So as these opportunities come up, I think we'll look for ways to be able to take on that similar problem globally using the same philosophy and the same general approach, but using different materials and, and different architectural response, of course, because of the, the climate and culture. That, I mean, that is remarkable. You're talking about countries going from 30% to 70% home ownership. It is a massive problem. And we have the, I would say that in the US, we have similar problems. They're just not as understood. You know, when we talked to Marty Koistra talking about there's 154,000 homes needed in King County in Seattle. I mean, that is a massive number of homes. Now, these type of problems are, I think that people often see the housing crisis as, oh, well, you know, rent is high in certain areas. That's kind of like the extent of like what the housing crisis means. But when you talk about the sheer volume of units and how much that would cost, and the fact that there are countries where that many people are going to come, similar to coming online, similar to the you know advancement of mobile, to the advancement of, of smart cell phones and all of that. I mean, these are so many people coming online, so many people coming into housing that it creates a delta, a need that is absolutely enormous. And if we don't have problems that can, that can scale and solve those problems, it's going to be built the way it was for the past 100 years, right? Yeah, that's right. And couple that with a labor shortage, a skilled labor shortage, and an aging population of, of people who are willing to go, go into the trades. And it's a real train wreck out there unless we, unless we change the way that we're doing this. What are some of the things that you're most excited about for the future of cities? I mean, and this, you know, it doesn't have to be building specific, but I mean, I know one of the things that we had talked about with a few folks was the idea that with modular, you could erect a building that you could then take down 20 years later as the need of the area shifts and put it somewhere else where there is need. Like that, the idea of houses being, you know, movable is as zero waste as you can get, right? As Or as close to zero waste as you can get. That's an exciting trend that I don't think anyone really sees coming. What are some of those type of trends that you're really excited about that people might not see coming? This is something that we're not taking on yet, but I'm Pretty intrigued by the idea of the the additive house. This was from the Pritzker Prize winning architect Alejandro from last year 
and his project in, in Chile that I think is just remarkable. And I think that triggered some other projects like that. I would love to see more of that where you essentially start a home and, and you, you purchase something that, that is started knowing that you will live there for a long time and add on to it over time. And so it's okay that it's unfinished. It allows you to get in and you can finish it over time. Now, how we get that through the regulatory hurdles in the U.S., I have no idea. But I would love to see more development like that. I can't say that's something that Katera has taken on, but I find that really interesting. I mean, that, that is, that's fascinating. The idea that, hey, we just got married, want to move in. We just need a one, a one bedroom. And then, hey, have the first kid, add a second bedroom. Hey, have a second kid at a third bedroom and another bathroom. Like, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And, and why not be able to just order that? You know, could, could you just, oh, I'm re- ready for that second bedroom and I know exactly how it fits together. I just have to buy these panels that come, you know, from the factory and click it together. It shouldn't be that difficult. That, that's future state for sure. But I hope we get to a point where we can do something like that. That's great. What other kind of like technological advancements or things that, are really exciting for the future of cities. I mean, how can we push the limits of what we're seeing now? Well, this is not technological, but one of the things that I'm really excited about is providing workforce housing at least near the city, if not in the, like directly in the city. You know, we really need to be able to provide housing for those people who are in that 80 to 120% AMI people who are, you know, in that salary range of fifty to 100000 who can no longer afford to live in the cities that they love. And, you know, I said that Seattle is one of my favorite cities, but frankly, it's, uh, it's become too expensive for most people to live in, and we need, to, we need to fix that. We can't continue to force people out into the suburbs, and this is not anything new. We've been talking about this for, forever, but that's one of the things that we are focused on, and it would make a tremendous impact on the livability of cities if we can bring the people who actually work in those cities, bring them right there. And this goes not only to the cities, but I'm also kind of, kind of have, a, have a personal passion to, to try to solve it in some of these resort cities too. Like if you go to Sun Valley or if you go to Telluride or you know any of these cities that are really fun to go to for recreation, you find that the people who make those ski towns or recreation towns successful can't afford to live there. And we have to fix that too. I think there are some unique models out there that have to be tuned exactly to that particular situation that need to be explored so that we can start to bring people who closer to where they work, which just makes a tremendous impact, not only on quality of life, but also on the environment. That's really interesting. What are some of those what are some of those things? I had something I hadn't thought of, but is yeah, I mean you're talking about like large levels of people in those type of towns that are really displaced when it comes to, you know, cost of living and all of that. Yeah, they're being forced to move further and further out of the out of the city. And you can imagine, you know, in a place like Jackson Hole, I think is a great example where the further you live away from the center of Jackson Hole, the, the more dangerous it is to get to work every day in the winter. So you're putting people's lives in danger because they can't afford to live anywhere near where they work. And that's just not right. And not only that, it just creates this division within the city or the town. It loses its life 
that, I mean, why do people like to live in cities? Because you've got that diversity and you've got this great range of people with various backgrounds and incomes. And that's what these smaller towns need too, before they just lose their character. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. All right, let's get into the lightning round real quick. I know your time is valuable and uh, we'll, we'll let you go here. Are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. I'll give it a try. All right. What is the app on your phone that is the most fun? Words with friends that I play religiously with my wife every day. That's great. I had to quit Words with Friends because my godmother and I were in a bit of a tiff and I was spending too much time on Words with Friends. So I fully understand and I'm a huge, I love Scrabble. So I'm, I'm right there with you. What is your favorite time-saving tool? I would say it's my commute on the ferry every morning. That's 45 minutes that I have to myself without any interruption. I'm very antisocial on the ferry because I protect that time. <laughs> I have a flat surface in front of me and a cup of coffee, and I can accomplish anything that I want to accomplish that day and usually pick off something that I know for sure I would never have time for when I get to the office. Do you listen to you know podcasts or anything like that on, on the ride, or is it just heads down and working? Well, I might have to, have to listen to yours, Ian. Um, that would, <laughs> would make an exception there, but it's, it's usually uh, KEXP, uh, John in the Morning, my favorite DJ on the best radio station in the world, KEXP, Seattle, Washington. And a roll of trace or a sketchbook or whatever I need to work on. I try to keep my computer in my bag and do something else during that 45 minutes. How about a favorite recent book that you've read? Uh, the Golden Spruce was a great book that I read. I'm about to take a trip up to that part of the world. I'm going on an eight-day guided sea kayaking trip in the Queen Charlotte's, the Haida Gwaii, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site for First Nation Settlement. And reading about the history of logging on the British Columbia coast was really interesting. And I just can't wait to get up there and see some of that country firsthand. I will have to put it on my, on my to-do list because we've been studying a bunch of the history of logging in the Bay Area for the future cities and talking about the idea of renewable resources and mass timber and all these different things and the idea of how much was just built with wood and how many cities were built with wood. But that's really fascinating. I'll have to check yeah, that out. That's a good one. How about favorite show or series that you've been watching? Boy, I'm going to disappoint you here because I'm not much of a TV watcher. I haven't really watched a series besides House of Cards. That so. <laughs> All good. That's totally fine. Well, we appreciate it. Okay, favorite one-day getaway in Seattle? Oh, I'd go back to Port Townsend, yeah, which is over on, on the Olympic Peninsula. And it's just one of my favorite towns. It just has a fantastic culture, great mix of really interesting little restaurants and bars and great natural area, easy hiking, access to water, beautiful sea kayaking. It's got it all. We'll have to schedule a, a trip. The mission will have to come up there. Our CEO Chad was just up in Vancouver recently, so and I was down in Port, or, you know, down in Portland, up in Portland, from where I am. So we're big fans of the Pacific Northwest. Lots of good places to go for a day here. Great. Okay. Anything else? Any final words? Final thoughts? No, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing all of the episodes.
Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.